2: see a film that simultaneously depicts the horrors of man's excessive barbarism, but also the indomitable spirit of human resilience, you have to watch The Mauritanian. Set in the legally dubious post-9-11 world, it tells the gripping story of Mohamedou Salahi and his rendition to the infamous ex-Soviet airbase Bagram in Afghanistan and then ultimately to Guantanamo Bay. Salahi was falsely accused of links to al-Qaeda And without recourse to due process or international treaties and conventions and the so called cherished principles of the US Constitution, he ended up spending 14 long years in Camp X Ray. Yet the power of the human spirit and his Islamic convictions prevailed, and he returned to his home country in Mauritania, exonerated of any wrongdoing. But the film left many unanswered questions. So I invited Muazzam Beg, also a former Guantanamo Bay prisoner, to talk about the film, his relationship with Salahi, and to put into context the geopolitical and legal issues that led to what some describe as a scar on American democracy. Just a quick reminder, to continue the discussion, please comment on our website or subscribe to our Twitter and Telegram accounts. We are looking to expand our podcast team and would like to invite volunteers and to receive your feedback. The podcast has grown in popularity and we are looking to increase the frequency of our programs and reach out to a wider audience. We aim to take a serious and in-depth look at issues. There are many good podcasts out there, but The Thinking Muslim looks to not replicate any of these tremendous efforts, but rather to offer a different tone and take on those issues and events. We Muslims Must Think About. If you are interested in getting involved, please send us a message for our website, thinkingmuslim.com. We would like to hear from you. So, Mu'azim Beg, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast.
3: Wa alaykum assalam warahmatullahi wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh, brother. It's my absolute pleasure to be speaking to you again.
2: Well, jazakallah care for coming onto my show now. I've invited you to talk about The Mauritanian. This is a film that's uh, just come out on Amazon Prime and it's uh it's got an all-star cast and its central protagonist, uh Mohamedou Salahi, a man who was rendered from his home in Mauritania uh to Guantanamo Bay. Uh can you bring us up to speed? Who is Mohamedou Salahi and and why uh why a film about his life?
3: Yeah, so um Uh the film, The Mauritanian, is essentially based on Mohamed um, Oulad Salahi's uh, uh, book or prison memoir, which is called uh, uh, Guantanamo Diary. The Guantanamo Diary in itself was actually uh, written on uh, notes and uh, letters to uh, Mohamedou's, or via Mohamedou's lawyers, um, and those notes and letters themselves were heavily redacted, meaning they were, they were blacked out, um, before they even, uh, you know, could be released. So it was eventually, you know, I think in 2015, I think, when the the first edition of the book was published. Um, and that eventually, after a while, led to, because there, were camp- there was a campaign for Muhammadu Salahi, including even in the British Parliament, though he's not a British citizen, um, but there were people who were concerned about his case Um and uh, it was Benedict Cumberpatch, uh, the actor, who actually his production company um, presented this as an idea for a film to, to Kevin MacDonald, uh, who, who then took it on. Uh, but essentially, it's the story of, of a, somebody in prison without, without charge or trial in Guantanamo uh, for, for, for all of his time, for 14 years. And, uh, uh, and the, that fascinating journey that he has.
2: Well, let's pick up on that fascinating journey. So take us through that. I mean, we know that uh, Guantanamo has housed over 700 uh, prisoners and uh, and there are a number of prisoners, a handful, I believe, that are still uh, in Guantanamo Bay. But um, tell us about his story and why was his or his, is his story of, of particular significance?
3: OK, yeah. So, I mean, in total, there have been 779 prisoners in Guantanamo. There are 40 still left. Uh, Mohamedou is one of those who were, who were released um, without charge or trial. Now, for a period of time, Mohamedou was regarded as a high value prisoner because of who he was and how he came to Guantanamo and the, the alleged connections he had. Um, Mohamedou is a Mauritanian citizen and uh, essentially he was taken from his home um, by Mauritanian security services. And then in a series of renditions, he was handed over <clears throat> and sent to various places, um, which began with Jordan. And then from Jordan, he was sent to U.S. custody in Bagram, which is where I was held. And I briefly met him um, uh, in 2002 and then from at Bagram at Bagram. And then from there, he was sent to Guantanamo, where he remained um until he was released in 2016 um so the 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 whole point of of his um imprisonment has been based upon the fact that he is the cousin of somebody known as abu hafs al mauritani who is a mauritanian scholar who was for a period of time um very close with Osama bin laden and and was one of their kind of um religious scholars as it were um and so that essentially became one of the reasons that connected him to uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, and the other one was that he had been in Afghanistan uh, in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, uh, at the time of the Soviet Union, and he had volunteered to help uh, in the fight against them. Um, but essentially, by the time that he was kidnapped um, and sent renditioned, he had no longer had that connection In the way that uh, the Americans believed he had,
2: so I suppose the Americans were were stitching together a a series of uh, of so called circumstantial evidences. You know, he his cousin is uh, has some profile in Al Qaeda. He's been to Afghanistan, uh, albeit during the time when uh, the Soviets uh, were on the 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 Mujahideen were on the side of the Americans, or the Americans were, were helping the the fight against the Soviets, yeah. but also he lived in Germany for a while. And, and of course, yeah, that's right.
3: Yeah. So he was a very intelligent, very bright young man. And he's one of the, you know, the handful of, in fact, no other person from his family left to go to the West. His father had in fact actually been a camel herder. And, you know, that's not even a, a a cliche for somebody from the Arabian desert. Um, and so he had won a scholarship to go and study in uh, 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 in um, in germany and it is in germany where he uh came across or people who were connected to 911 stayed in his in his place for one night so all of these you know there, there are there are kind of coincidences in a sense but they are also uh non they, they they have no impact at all really in in him being uh connected to terrorism there's no there's no uh, nothing tangible about that these are just things that happen um they mean nothing to him but they mean a lot to the americans uh, who are deeply at the time when it happens uh, after 9-11 uh suspicious of everybody and for them the the this this fits the profile and then what they did to him next is is unbelievable even when i saw the film uh, i didn't realize what he had gone through
2: now, Wasenberg, I think our listeners will know you were held at Bagram and, and later you were uh, renditioned or rendered to, uh, to Guantanamo Bay. And um, as you said, the film depicts, uh, in, in a, you know, there is a seer in 10 minutes where um, uh, I, I really found it very difficult to, to follow uh, the, the torture. How typical was this of um, the way the Americans acted uh, post 9-11?
3: So so there are certain techniques I know that they, you know, they, they use them in Bagram, they used them in Kandahar, and they were very, very vicious. Um, they would call them enhanced interrogation techniques and say, oh, it's not torture. We're not pulling out people's fingernails. We're not drowning them. We're not, uh, 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 you know, doing those things. But actually, in real terms, they were just on the tip of it. And In fact, in Mohamedou's case, I didn't know that they'd actually tried to, you know... Um, assimilate uh, drowning with him until I saw the film. Um, I, I, I I, didn't know that they had broken his ribs. I didn't know of the nature in detail of the sexual assault against him. Um, uh, so all of those things, I think they were more than what normally happens. But having said that, in, in particular, so there was a case of a particular prisoner. His name was Mohammed Al-Qahtani, who's still in Guantanamo. And they accused him of being, you know, as many had been, uh, of being Different uh, ranks of Al Qaeda and so forth, and I've read him the testimony about him that he was wrapped in an Israeli flag, that a female uh, uh, interrogator sat on him, straddled him, put a hand down herself, and smeared fake blood, which which he was led to believe was real blood, menstrual blood, on him, uh, was waterboarded, so. I knew that from Mohammed Al-Qahdani's case. I didn't know it from Mohammed Walid Salahi's case. And then I, I, I began to piece together and realize that this wasn't, this is, you know, this is far more systematic than just people thinking of, of, of these techniques. In fact, the more you research, the more you understand that these techniques were part of the Sear's training program that had come out from the CIA, um, that they themselves had learned uh, from various techniques that they'd gathered over the years, in the wars against the um, Vietnamese and uh, the Koreans,
2: we are led to believe that the Americans, um, they uh, they believe in some very fundamental liberal principles. I mean, the Constitution of America enshrines into law uh, values such as habeas corpus and and the rule of law and uh, and you know in in America of course, the reality of you know we can we can just cite the black lives matter movement and and the treatment of minorities in america to 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 contradict this but in 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 uh in theory, at least there are uh there are very strong uh, constitutional uh um, laws or constitutional um contraptions i suppose that are, uh, that prevent this type of horrific um uh, maltreatment of prisoners. Um, how did it come to this? How did the Americans end up uh, breaking their their terrorist principles and uh, and torturing in this way? So, as I said to you, um, there are different there are different aspects
3: that Americans have taken from different places. One of the, one of them, for example, is that some of the blueprints. And I've learned this from my from my tra- travels to Northern Ireland. In, so, the British had used something known as the five techniques. The five techniques uh, included um, uh, sleep deprivation, food deprivation, uh, drink deprivation, um, white noise, and uh, I think, you know, a a, a form of beating. These techniques were used on former IRA prisoners here by the British. uh, And then they, interestingly, they they were regarded as inhumane treatment, but not torture. So just before the war on terrorism began, that became a benchmark so that they could do these things. Yeah, somebody might say that this is a bit cruel or a bit inhuman, but it's not torture technically. And what the U.S. Uh, administration and the uh, architects of the war on terrorism, and particularly the um, uh, the most senior legal advisors, uh, Alberto Gonzalez, who is the Attorney General of the United States of America, mm-hmm. Jay Bybee uh, and others, they essentially said, uh, and to quote, that if it is not... Organ failure, or severe physical impairment, uh, or death, then it is not torture. So these, in the infamous torture memos that were sent out between the various um, lawyers of the uh, of the United States, um, essentially they crafted this language to say it's not torture. And um, the program, the torture program itself, was developed by uh, by psychiatrists. Uh, and they started with Abu Zubaydah, um, who's still in Guantanamo, who was tortured terrifically mm. again, um, but of course included people like Muhammad Walid Salahi, who, who, um, uh, you know, we, we've seen all of the, some of those depictions uh, in the film.
2: I just want to understand. Um, so, d- did Fay uh, publicly recognise, publicly state that uh, we're going to undertake these uh, types of uh, interrogations, but? It's not torture. And, and was it was it open and and, and transparent to, to the public that they were doing uh, using these types of techniques in, in Bagram and in Guantanamo and, of course, in secret prisons uh, around the world? Or w- did we find out about these enhanced interrogation techniques after the event?
3: Yes, uh, in a word, yes, because things started to leak out slowly. There was this concern, you know, there, there were there's memos and discussions, documents that have come out in which FBI agents are saying what the CIA is doing is, is we don't want to be part of this. And it's going to make us look really, really bad. Uh, there was all of that stuff, even though FBI agents themselves were in on the interrogations many times, including my own. Um, uh, and so so the America's connection with torture is a really sordid affair. Um, you know, if we would just look at it through the president's and their interpretations. So George Bush comes along and says, we don't torture it's enhanced interrogation techniques. So essentially they just reword it and, and get away with it that way. Um, Obama comes along, he says, um, we tortured some folks. The result of that torture actually, um, you know, has been very bad for America and I will put an end to torture and I'll close Guantanamo. So that's what his, that's how he dealt with it. But he also said crucially that everybody involved in the torture program will be immune from prosecution. That's important because it essentially says that, uh, you are protected from war crimes that you've committed. Um, and then because this constitutional lawyer who is Obama grants that immunity to the torturers, even though he says torture is bad for America, Donald Trump, when he comes along, he says, I believe torture works. I would waterboard and do a whole lot more. And torturing these people is the right thing to do. And he can say that without uh, without any sense of of, uh, of irony or, or fear. Um, of being labelled because torture is not a crime now. And uh, that's how far it's become. Uh, essentially, when, when you're the United States government, you, you can torture people and you can get away with it. You can produce a 6,000-page uh, a report, which was done by Senator Diane Fenstein in 2014, which uh, detailed the case of 119 prisoners, including, I think, Muhammad Wulad Salahi, and how they'd been terribly tortured. And you can do this exercise in openness and transparency and say, oh, look, we tortured some people. We've learned lessons now. We're going to move on. And not a single person gets um, any accountability or prosecution.
2: I mean, just to pick up on that last point, Barack Obama was very critical of uh, uh, the torture that was conducted under his predecessor, and he vowed he, he called for a, an end to this type of activity. And I think he put in hmm. some safeguards as well to prevent it happening ever again. I mean, how genuine was he in uh, in in preventing uh, this level of this type of physical and psychological harm
3: well he he said we will put an end to torture and that we will close Guantanamo and the secret detention sites well he he did but in the most in the most uh, um, insidious way so whilst people were being detained without charge or trial Extradit judicially by by his predecessor Bush, all he did was to kill them without charge or trial. So he wasn't torturing them; he was just killing them. And how he did that was through the drone program, through the uh, 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 unmanned aerial vehicles, as they're called. And literally, if a person comes up on the list as a suspect, remember, a person's a suspect; he's not. Is con- nobody knows that this person is uh, uh, has committed a crime or not? So. Then this drone war begins and it becomes, uh, it becomes uh, an extrajudicial killing process right across. Like it began with Afghanistan, but it goes then right to Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, Libya, um, you know, right across the Muslim world.
2: In the film, um, we, uh, we, we see that um, Salahi um, is almost in a legal black hole. No one knows he's held in Guantanamo Bay, and it's only the efforts of a lawyer. Uh, and uh, her, um, her inquisitive nature and her, her desire to find out that um, uh, that leads to um, you know him he, being named as as someone who's been held, but for a period of time I think it was three years if I if I remember right, uh, his mother his family just didn't know where he was and and whether he was alive or not. I mean, is that typical of of Guantanamo prisoners? I mean, in, in your case, for example, how quickly? Did the, the world outside, did your family know that you were at Guantanamo Bay? Um,
3: they found out eventually. That, I mean, my, my, my family knew I was kidnapped because, my, I mean, my story, you know, I actually had a phone in my pocket when I was kidnapped and managed to make a phone call before the battery died. And so I, I told my father the Americans present. But he didn't know I was in Guantanamo until he received a message from the Red Cross, which was several months later. I mean, I think it was a year later, in fact. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very typical. It's very, very typical. This this incommunicado detention, that's what it's essentially called, is that where you are cut off from the rest of the world, from your family, from lawyers, from uh, the media, from anybody. In fact, there are some prisoners who were actually cut off from the Red Cross themselves. So that means that you had no access to anybody outside at all. Uh, and this is something that the United States has specialised in, in Guantanamo.
2: And what about international law? The Geneva Convention uh, is is something that's often cited as a uh, as a um, uh, you know a, a multilateral treaty, I suppose, or convention, signed by uh, the majority of countries, and and that guarantees the humane treatment of of prisoners. I mean, uh, did the Bush administration not recognise, or even the Obama re- uh, administration after, recognise uh, the the need to follow the Geneva Convention?
3: So one of the things that I learned, I mean, I, I learned about the conventions myself because of my own incarceration, but is that it, it, immediately you are required to, especially in, in a, in a, if you're in a conflict zone, or, although it must be said, <laughs> a, a large number of prisoners were not taken from conflict zones. I was taken from Pakistan, which was not in conflict. Mohammedou um, was taken from Mauritania, was, not, was in conflict. Uh, I know others who were taken from Azerbaijan, Morocco, Indonesia, uh, Gambia, uh, Zambia. Uh, so th- this was part of the global war on terrorism where America essentially says that the world is our, is the battlefield and we can, we can exercise our rights uh, at warfare anywhere. Uh, but essentially, uh, the, the Americans crafted this very, very carefully so that, um, none of these conventions really applied. So what they said is that you are now enemy combatants. Uh, you're not a prisoner of war, which is very distinct to the, uh, to the Geneva Convention and uh, Article 3 hearings don't apply to you, where uh, early on, you re- a court uh, is required to determine uh, within days, literally, of whether you are a combatant, a non-combatant, a civilian, a uh, non-participant, all of those sorts of things, they determine very quickly so that they can sift through who is and who shouldn't be there as part of any conflict. They didn't do that at all. Uh, and that's why you had people held in Guantanamo for years on end who were non-combatants they had no connection to any hostile activities and inside in some cases the irony is is that those who were combatants i.e from taliban and other al-qaeda members were released before those who were from countries that you couldn't return them to because there's conflict in those countries but that person is not a combatant so he remains in guantanamo while the actual combatants get freed.
2: And and were these combatants also labelled unlawful or enemy combatants?
3: Yeah, I mean, so everybody was law, everybody had that label. I mean, uh, the first term they used to describe us was unlawful enemy aliens. I mean, that that in itself seems a ridiculous terminology, but then the next one was enemy combatants. Um, And this is how confused the Americans were, because they issued enemy prisoner of war cards initially. I I had one myself in, in Kandahar. And that would have been under the role as uh, under the Geneva Conventions. They recognized their mistake very, very early on. And they took back those cards from us. and They just gave us little cards with numbers on because that essentially would have said that we are prisoners of war and would have to be treated as such. And prisoners of war are supposed to uh, be exchanged at the end of hostilities. And they announced the end of hostilities when the Taliban had fallen.
2: But, but how did they justify um, to the outside world that these prisoners in, in Afghanistan were, were going to be treated differently to how prisoners were treated during the Second World War or, or, or others? I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it's,
3: it's, it's actually Nazi terminology. The Nazis, when they captured members of the uh, uh, French resistance, they treated them as spies and shot them and killed them because they said they are not in uniform. Um, and so here, Afghanistan, you know, all the various parties and factions there, they dress very traditionally, even in battle. Um, so the argument about being, you know, imposing this kind of Western uh, way of, oh, you must all be in a particular type of uniform with an insignia, et cetera, et cetera, wouldn't have applied to the uh, Northern Alliance who were actually allied with uh, uh, the West. So it, it was just make your rules up as you go along, literally. there were, there were None of these conformed to the military code of justice or the uh, army army training manual or military manual. It was make it up as you go along.
2: Now, in the film, uh, a relationship develops between uh, Salahi and another man from Marseille. And I think in the film, we never learn his name, or we may learn it t- towards the end, but he, he he's called Marseille or you know, by, by where he's come from, mm. and, and there is a... You know, a, a very strong relationship or a bond that develops between the two. Now, at one stage, sorry for the spoiler for for our listeners, but at one stage we find out that um, he has passed away and he died in his cell. But it's left open as to uh, the cause of his death. Um, can you shed some light on this? What do we know why or how he died?
3: Yeah. So I, I I've been meaning to speak to Mohammed about this to ask him about this because it's 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 troubled me as well. Um, he speaks to, to let's say, Marseille in the film, um, uh, which in itself is a problem because he's in Camp Echo Special where there's only one recreation yard, at least at least when, when I was there, which means that there are no two prisoners out at the same time. Uh, and I, I, I wasn't sure. And then on top of that, I checked to see, it, was there a prisoner from Marseille um, who died? And there isn't one. I, I know there's no French prisoners. There were French prisoners. But there is none that has died in Guantanamo. So I, I, I thought of one of two things. I'm not sure. I'm, I get the sense is that um, it could have been them playing tricks with him, um, and playing mind games with him and pretending, uh, or, or it could be something else. I'm not totally sure. But uh, I, I don't. Uh, my information says to me that there was no French prisoner who died.
2: So so was that common for prisoners to die? I mean, when you were there, did you hear stories of, of prisoners who had passed away?
3: Yeah, well, so nine prisoners have passed away in Guantanamo. They actually made a cemetery in Guantanamo, but they have not thus far um, actually used it. They've sent back the bodies. I think probably one of the most, uh, in 2005, just shortly after I, I was released, three prisoners died. Um, the Americans claim they, they hanged themselves. The prisoners say that they were, they were killed some former soldiers US guardsmen say that they were killed also there's a big debate about it but one of them was a young man called uh Talal al and he was 17 when he first taken to Guantanamo oh, yeah. and uh, by the time he was he, he died he was uh, i think 21 and uh, uh, his father actually is was was uh, the chief of police of the city of Medina and uh, his name is uh, Talal al-Zaharani, if you go onto the CAGE website, you'll see this amazing interview I've done with him. Um, what an amazing character, actually. Um, and he, the father uh, told me that when his son came back to Medina, uh, he came back without a throat. He had no throat. The throat had been removed. Um, and there was, I think, 5,000 people who attended the 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 uh, the janazah. And the, the man is a very dignified father. The father's a very, very dignified man. Um, and and I said to him that, you get my condolences. And he responded by saying, listen, my son, I don't need condolences. I believe my son is in paradise. Why would you need to give me condolences about that? So that was his kind of outlook and, and, and take. And uh, there's a film about him as well. It's called uh, Death in Camp X-Ray. It was made by a Norwegian filmmaker that you can, your listeners could watch.
2: And have the Americans ever admitted to, um, uh, to these deaths?
3: No, the Americans, have said, the Americans have said, and I quote, they say that these people have killed themselves, which is an act of asymmetrical warfare. <laughs> That's, they've actually said that these people have killed themselves, and and, and uh, they did it because <coughs> um, it's it's some kind of you know, twisted form of warfare.
2: The Film is is quite gruelling at at times, but actually uh, this film um, focuses on on of course uh, this one prisoner, Muhammadu Salahi, and it 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 tells us something about his spirit and his ability to endure, and and his I mean he was held for fourteen years, yet you know, he remained optimistic and, and sometimes even playful uh, with his interrogators. Um, what, you know, what accounts for that? How did, you know, this man who was so ill-treated by, by, the, by the Americans, how, how did he remain so constant and, in, in a, and, and how did his spirit remain so strong throughout this period? You know, one of the things that
3: unfortunately the film can't do doesn't, and it doesn't do is, is show other prisoners, um, and his relationship with those other prisoners. And I think that's a crucial part of any prisoner's experience, unless you are, you, and, and I know people have been held in solitary confinement for many, many years of the, 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 their incarceration, including myself. I, I spent almost two years in, in solitary. But your, your connection with other prisoners really has a massive effect on you um, in terms of spiritually, emotionally, uh, physically, mentally, and all of those things, uh, as does the, the role of the guards and the soldiers. Um, Less so the interrogators. The interrogators are, there's still an, in in my experience at least, there's always an adversarial, well, not always, but there's a a sense that these people here, they're not my friends. They've come to get something from me. Uh, And not all interrogators are are as bad as one another. But initially, in the first few years, the treatment was pretty terrible. Uh, In the midst of that, you find soldiers, as did Mohamedou, and I think this is one of the unique aspects to his story, is that he... He befriends a soldier, and that soldier remembers him because they leave, of course, after a year or so. Nobody's there for usually for a longer than a year uh, tour of duty, um, but it sticks in the prisoner's in the soldier's mind. Even though you, as the prisoner, because you're there for so long, there's a new set of guards that come along. You've got to start the process with them from scratch. Everything, you, any friendships you build up, they've all wiped wiped out. So you've got to start again. And you've got to do that again. I did that for three years. Mohammed did that for 14 years. I don't know how, I don't even can't even begin to think how he maintained a relationship with somebody 14 years or 13 years later um, that he'd met in the first year of his incarceration. And, and then to this day, they are still friends.
2: I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. And, and we've talked about the Americans, the United States and it's, um, uh, and uh, its response to nine eleven and uh, the years of, of the war on terror have been, have been disastrous, I suspect for, for Americans. And most Americans today see it as a as a, as a bleak period for, for, for a mixture of different reasons. Um, what does this tell us about American power in the world? What do, what do these last twenty years tell us about america
3: um, I think America is polarized and it is bipolar. Um, if you think about it, if you just look at how Obama comes along and the world is, you know, there are people that are crying, you know, about uh, Ob- through, through joy that Obama can be elected to a country that has been built upon the backs of racism and slavery and the, the wiping, wiping out of Native Americans. And then here's an African man with the name Barack Hussein Obama at a time when there's a war on terrorism being elected to the president. So there's the one side. Then the other side is America elects a guy who is hailed by the Ku Klux Klan as their man in the White House that follows him. So America's bipolar. I don't know which other way to describe it. Um, And in the midst of all of that, with its own um, convulsions of the Black Lives Matter movements and all the other uh, things that are happening there, America is trying to establish itself uh, as some kind of a... Uh, a a nation that has laws and principles that it can export to the rest of the world. But how do you do that when you've got Guantanamo, which is the the most well-known of the worst places you have. And then from Guantanamo, there's a Guantanamoization of your detentions process, whether it's in the United States of America, I've heard of so many people have contacted me telling me that torture is rampant on us soil, on, uh, um, in in U.S. prisons, uh, and as well as the legacies of Iraq and Afghanistan, where American roles in the torture program and uh, the uh, the prisons of Abu Ghraib and so forth still live with us to this day. I mean, the, the emergence of ISIS happened from places like Camp Bukha and Camp uh, and Abu Ghraib, where uh, you know members of Al Qaeda in Iraq met the Baathist party and formed the what become, would become uh, ISIS.
2: What we learn from the film is even after uh, Salahi uh, succeeds in um, uh, in his case and, and is ordered for release, the Obama administration refuses uh, uh, to release him and he remains in prison for a further seven years. I mean, how did this happen under Obama, who, who, of course, promised, as you said, to close the prison in the first week of his presidency? Um, it, it's
3: because there is no... Nobody's, although, you know, there's. you give the lawyers some credit, to be honest with you. It's not lawyers who get people out of Guantanamo. Lawyers don't do that because there is no law. There is no legal process. Nobody gets released from Guantanamo because a court judgment was made and that judgment was followed through. There have been two Supreme Court decisions, U.S. Supreme Court decisions in Russell versus Bush and uh, Boumedian versus Bush which both gave the prisoners rights of habeas corpus to have their case presented in court. Both of those individuals were released and not because of those, those, those rulings, uh, many years after those rulings. Um, and if you thought that law had anything to do with it, despite those rulings, um, just earlier this year, there was a ruling in uh, Abdus Salam uh, al case, which concluded that the prisoners in Guantanamo have no right to due process. That was the ruling in his case in, in a court of appeal, in a in a, uh, a district court ruling. So it can tell you then that people don't get released because of that reason. They get released because of the embarrassment, because of um, things coming out in different places, because of media campaign. I came here, it, it, Nancy Hollander, that's the first time I met her, was actually in the British Parliament. There was an event taking place. There was a reading from Mohammed's book, And people like uh, Toby Jones and Sanjeev Bhaskar and all these other actors were actually doing readings from his book. And it was that kind of pressure uh, that embarrassed people to do something for Mohamedou. Otherwise, he would have remained in even longer.
2: And on that, you recently had a discussion, uh, an online discussion with um, um, Salahi's lawyer and one of his jailers that you mentioned he befriended. Um, Tell me about that discussion.
3: Yeah. So let me begin, first of all, with with the with steve wood because steve wood's a really interesting character he's the kind of he's the person i was talking about that befriended muhammadu and uh, um, uh, remembered him they remained remained friends many years later steve wood of his own volition nothing to do directly with muhammad though he he was influenced by his his life um embraced islam in america and became a muslim and you can see a film by the guardian it's called my Bro- uh, my brother's keeper in which he ret- he goes to to Mauritania and he meets Muhammadu and they pray together in the desert and eat together and stuff like that and it's just really really heartwarming um, but having this discussion with him with Kevin McDonald the filmmaker and Nancy Hollander was really truly a, a, a you know a deeply inspirational to me everybody else is everybody else is is on everybody else is um, important but not in the way Mohamedou is this is his story it's being told from his voice and his experience, and everybody else's, you know, excuse the word, but periphery. Um, And uh, the reason I say this is because the man's, I couldn't do what he does. I couldn't be the way he is. I don't know how he is so happy, jovial, laughing, jokey, um, forward-looking, unembittered, all of those things. I marvel at him. I really marvel at him. But then I remember my connection to, Many, many former Guantanamo prisoners, and I think to myself, I'm—I feel like I'm—they were held, you know, far longer than I was, um, and yet I still talk about this stuff in a, in very passionate terms. And these guys are so—it uh, seems like Guantanamo did, didn't—it made them better people. That's the only thing I can
2: I can say. And and we uh, Muslims have lived through a prolonged period of victimization and and i suppose hatred um from the war on terror and, and we see that all across europe and it it's it, it's never ending um and many of us have just become desensitized to uh you know the, the help of some well-meaning non-muslims and i think there is a you know maybe it's a small minority but there is a there is a strand in the muslim community that that believe that um you know visa they're gonna they're never going to work you know help mm. us uh in in any way and um you know you hear that especially amongst young yeah. people um yeah. you know and, and when you were talking about his jailer and and you know his lawyer um you know v the, the uh you know these people did work and and effectively worked to to, to help him um did you ever feel that way about um, and uh, that bitter about uh, the, the non-Muslims around you?
3: No, I think it's, it's, it's wrong. Uh, I think that is an indoctrination that we have that is deeply problematic and it is uh, wrong. It's Islamically wrong. The person who protected the Prophet, alayhi salatu Salam for, for you know, all of his, his own life and, and, uh, was Abu Talib, who was, a, who was not even a Christian or a Jew. He was a polytheist. And the Quran actually bears witness to the fact that the Prophet loved a polytheist. Inna man yasha. That you, O oh Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, cannot guide who you wish. Allah guides whoever He wishes. Meaning, uh, you, you know, you cannot guide who you love. Sorry, um, and that was that was Abu Talib. So uh, my view is that we need lots and lots of Abu Talibs nowadays, where Muslims are getting targeted, and we should appreciate that. Um, uh, from non-Muslims, from wherever they happen to be, because uh, uh, that sense of protecting somebody um, can only have, have good results. And uh, vice versa, if you show that, you can see through the actions of, I mean, I've, as I said, there's been several former Guantanamo prisoners who accepted Islam. This is not, a soldier, sorry, who accepted Islam. And it was through watching the conduct of the prisoners And that is crucial um, because uh, Islam's role and our duty as Muslims isn't to hate people. It is to uh, be a cause of their salvation.
2: Now, the Americans acted in a way contrary to all known human values that they profess to believe in. And um, we Muslims also profess to believe in a higher standard. Yet uh, it is, I think, correct to say that torture is rife in the Muslim world and just look at the Arab rulers and look at uh, the actions of ISIS. Uh, can you argue that you know this is just the condition of of human beings and and when human beings are um, uh, are um, uh, emotionally uh, um, disturbed, in, in you know, as as we saw, the Americans were after nine eleven, they are going to act in this in this hu- inhumane way.
3: I think that's correct. Uh, um... The, the Muslim world, um, Muhammad and I speak about this often, he says that, you know, no matter what the Americans did to me, it, 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 it's uh, if you take just take one look at the Muslim world, you'll see you'll see Guantanamo's everywhere. And uh, unfortunately, he's right. And the Americans actually knew this. And that's why a lot of the, the torch they did was outsourced to places like Morocco, Egypt, Jordan and so forth. I mean, why did they speak? One of the reasons they sent him to, to Jordan in itself was to try to extract information from him in ways that uh, perhaps they wouldn't even do. Um, but yes you 're right this, this this notion of having a higher set of standards and principles and morals. there are so many uh, Quranic verses about torture, so many ayat uh, of the Prophet wasallam warning people that uh, not to, to actually to physically actually say torture Allah you know, in one hadith he says in Allah al- Allah will to- torment those who torture people in this dunya that 's a clear hadith so there are many many injunctions against this, so we 've got those principles they already exist um and indeed we have them in the west with the, uh, the there is an absolute prohibition on torture in international law in england in the united states of america everywhere um that's all good on paper but in reality do you do those things the answer is that both sides do it uh, and therefore you have to beg the question um uh, who is who has a moral stronger moral high ground uh, and the answer is neither neither do because they both break their principles, and um, until we start to recognise that and have a little bit of humility, there's no point in claiming uh, you have a higher moral principle when you can't apply it.
2: And finally, uh, Muslim, um, what is uh, uh, Muhammad Salahi doing now? You've mentioned that you know he's he's remained extremely optimistic, and uh, his prison letters were were released, and it became uh, a best selling uh, best selling book. But um, does he continue? I mean, uh, the 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 film talks a lot about his writing style and his ability to put on into paper um, in, in, a, in a very articulate way, his he, thoughts. Is he, is he uh, continuing to write? Yeah, he's written another
3: book. I've forgotten what the book's called now, but it is available if you do search on it on The Mauritanian. The, the book is now, there's a new version of his book itself called The Mauritanian, which is just essentially Guantanamo Diary re- renamed. Um, but he has written another book, a shorter book, which is about it's about based upon his father's life, which is about a camel herder, really. And it's beautiful to see that Muhammad going back to his kind of roots about who he is, where he's from and connecting with that. At the same time, he's actually married a U.S. citizen uh, who lives in Germany and he's unable to travel to Germany. Or indeed, um, uh, Pretty Patel here in the UK refused to give him a visa saying that he, his presence here would not be conducive to the public good Um Uh, And so he still continues to face that kind of sanctions from various governments um, that would have, that should have um, at least seen some kind of humanity in him. He was actually invited by Benedict Cumberbatch to come over to the UK to visit him and to do a tour and stuff. And that would have been a pleasure for us to go around with him. Um, But so he still faces hurdles, uh, still faces difficulties. He has a son, young son called Ahmed, who he can't see until unless they come to visit him in Mauritania. Uh, from Germany so he still has those struggles and uh, they I guess part and parcel of of, of the ongoing struggle of, of being a former Guantanamo prisoner
2: Jazakallah it's it's been fascinating to hear about uh, and, and I, would, I would advise everyone to watch uh, this film so, my pleasure